Hi, you're now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. We're happy to bring you sermons like this one every week. You can find other sermons at our site at harvest-community.org. So without further ado, here's our speaker. Uh, before I get into it, I just wanted to say thank you on behalf of myself, Holly, and Joshua. Um, it has been a privilege being a part of this community. We moved here about a year and a half ago, and um, we just feel so indebted to everyone here, especially um, the leadership, the elders, the, the ministry staff, and uh, to our CG for welcoming us as, as your family. And um, that's helped us make the transition to Chicago um, so much easier. And we love it here. We love uh, the people, the, uh, the ministry, and uh, we count it such a joy to be, uh, to be among you. So thank you for giving us the chance to even serve in ministry to be trained um, under your tutelage. And um, even this morning, just uh, getting ready for the sermon, uh, I think maybe 20 people came up to me and said, uh, we're, we're praying for you, Mark. And um, I was really encouraged on one hand. On the other hand, I was like, oh, my gosh, should I be, like, really nervous? Like, 20 people are coming up to me saying that I got to be, like, you know, ready for this. And so, um, you know, thank you so much for that. I always joke around saying that this is a really tough crowd because um, Pastor Dave actually came out to our church in New York and spoke at our church there. And we just thought he was like the funniest guy. He's, um, it was like a stand-up comedy act. Like every five minutes we're like cracking up. And then we came here and I don't know if people are just used to him, but I mean, I think people are like too tired to laugh or something because I feel like he's like one of the funniest guys, but I'm looking around and like, I feel like me and Holly are the only ones like cracking up in the back. So, um, but yeah, anyways, uh, thank you so much for, uh, for, for listening. And, um, before we get into it, can I just pray, um, one more time? Um, please join me as I ask for the Lord's help. God, thank you so much for the privilege and the joy of heralding your word. Um, it's, um, it's an exciting task, but it's also very frightening to be able to be your mouthpiece. And I just ask for your Holy Spirit to come and fill me. May these words not be my own, from my own wisdom and strength, but may they be from your own lips, God. And I pray that you would give a word to this people, um, a hungry people who need to hear a word from you. And so I ask that you would take over, help me to decrease, may you increase. We pray that you would make yourself known in this place this morning. We thank you so much, and in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, The chapter that I wanted to focus on today is Hebrews 11. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'm going to actually just highlight certain parts of that chapter. Um, But if you you have your Bibles, if you can turn to Hebrews chapter 11, as you turn there, I just wanted to provide a little bit of context. Hebrews 10, the chapter right before, exhorts believers to persevere in faith. The chapter afterwards, Hebrews 12, provides the means for persevering in faith, which is fixing our eyes on Jesus, who's the author and perfecter of our faith. And sandwiched between these two chapters is Hebrews 11, the one that we're going to focus on this morning. And it provides Old Testament examples of men of faith, men and women of faith, who have fought the good fight, who have persevered in faith, who have fixed their eyes on Jesus. And it gives flesh to the concepts that we're going to be talking about today. And it's often referred to as the hall of faith. And and, and rightly so, but I think what's important is not the focus on these men and, and, and women who who through their hard-nosed effort followed Christ, but it's, it's really the, the emphasis on, on Christ himself, who is the object of our faith, who empowers our faith. And so that's what I wanted to focus on today. Um, some of the questions that I was, I was thinking through as I was reading the text is, what enabled these people to persevere in faith? And, and how do we persevere in faith, especially when the Christian life feels, feels like such an obligation, like such a drag? 
what can we learn from these individuals? How did they pursue Christ? Did they just buckle down because they knew that was what they had to do? My, my argument today is going to be, it's not that they just had to buckle down, but they had to look ahead to the prize in Christ. They had to look outside of their current circumstances and look to what God offered and his promises to, to be their reward, to be their safety and, and their security. And that's what I wanted to focus on today. And, and there's just three main points highlighting in the lives of Enoch, Abraham, and Moses how we can persevere in faith. And the first one is we persevere in faith by believing that God exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. In verses 5 and 6 of Hebrews 11, it says this, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Not much is said about Enoch in the Bible. This, this verse pretty much captures what the entire Old Testament says about this character of Enoch. And there's basically two things about Enoch that are highlighted. Number one is that he pleased God through his faith. He walked with God. And number two, God took him up to heaven before he died. And there's important things that we can learn about this faith that pleases God. And it's, it's one that believes that God exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. The, the reality that God is true and alive forms the basis of our seeking. We, we can't seek that which we cannot feel is real. Sensing the reality of God precedes our walking with God. Brother Lawrence, I don't know if you've heard of him, he wrote this book called Practicing the Presence of God. And in it, he highlights how we're supposed to day-to-day think about God, commune with him, converse with him, and acknowledge that he is there with us. Because when we know that he is there, when his presence is with us, that's when we're able to actually have faith in him. I mean, I know it might seem obvious, but we have to actually sense his existence, sense that he's real, in order to feel that he is an object that we can actually place our faith in. It's, it's not only the apologetic reasons for believing in the existence of God, you know, steps one through ten and why, you know, different proofs on why God is true, but it's, it's experiencing him day to day and, and understanding that he's real to us actually on a practical daily basis. The faith that perseveres also involves believing that God rewards those who earnestly seek him. There, there's a sense here in which God appeals to this desire inside of us where we actually want to seek what's best for ourselves. We're, we're motivated by a, a, a sense of desire, incentive. And I think when we think about how we're actually wired, even from birth, we, we can relate to this. When we think about kids, uh, for the parents out there, I think you can relate to this. Even for those who aren't, as a child, I think I remember some stories growing up on how my parents motivated me to do certain things. Um, you know, Mark, please eat your vegetables. If you want to eat ice cream afterwards, you have to finish your vegetables. Um, um, if, you, if you want to play video games, you have to study for three hours. I mean, these are things that, that resonated with me. There, there had to be some kind of incentive for me, some reward in it. And I, I think that's what God is appealing to. And it's not just for kids, too. Even as adults, I think the way that the world is, is designed, the way even in a corporate setting how people are motivated to work, it's, it's through incentive. It's through reward. Um, when I was working in, in New York, we... Um, we put in a lot of hours. I was working in finance out there, and I was maybe working 80 to 90 hours a week. And there, there's no sane reason why I would do that in, in any right mind, work 80, 90 hours a week. Um, but the way that they motivated us is by a year-end bonus. It's, 
It's their way of incentivizing us to work hard throughout the year because we knew that there was something waiting for us at the end of that year. So even as an adult, I was, I was motivated by this desire to seek a reward. And I think this is what, what God actually put inside of it. It's not a bad thing to desire that reward. We just have to find it in the right places. I think what's important to understand is that when we, when we, even when we forego something for a reward, um, when, we, when we think that we're, we're giving up something, even that decision in and of itself is, is appealing to something that we want. So if I were to help someone and I, I forego all my desire to please myself and benefit myself, even in that decision to help someone to, to deny myself, there, there's some kind of value there, some kind of um, self-satisfaction that I get out of helping someone. And so this is what God is, is appealing to. And what's important is that this reward is, is God himself. And it's not, it's not a mercenary faith. It's not the prosperity gospel where we pursue God, we pursue faith, because what we want is, is health and wealth and prosperity. But what's important is that God is the rewarder, that God is that thing that ultimately satisfies us. And this, I think, is one of the greatest truths for the Christian life. I mean, I think it's almost impossible to just out of duty to follow Christ to just roll up our sleeves and through our hard work to follow Christ as hard as we can. We have to desire him. And I think for me personally, this has had a profound impact on my relationship with God. I remember, I think I was in college or a little bit after college, but I, I stumbled across this book called Desiring God by, by John Piper. And I, I know some of you who like his ministry, this, this sounds kind of familiar, but I remember reading that book and it revolutionized the way I approach my Christian faith. I, I think I spent three or four nights straight staying up till 3 a.m. reading this book, and I am the slowest reader. I probably read as fast as I talk. I mean, this is kind of the pace at which I read. And I, I just stayed up. I couldn't put the book down because it was fascinating. I think actually at that point when I read that book, I feel like I became a Christian all over again because it defined God as not a person who is angry at me all the time and just wants me to obey it's not about me being happy. It's just about me obeying him no matter how I feel. And that image, that vision of God transformed into this person who actually loved me and he wanted me to be happy. He wanted me to be joyful in him. And that revolutionized my thinking about God. This is a God who actually wants me to be happy. And I, he is my reward. I, I find my greatest joy in him. And that was maybe the, the, the greatest paradigm shift I've, I've ever experienced in my walk with God. And this is, I mean, when we think about the gospel message, this is basically the gospel message at its heart. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The, the message of the gospel is not that God just forgives our sins and, and leaves us be. The, the gospel is a means to something else, and that something else, the end of the gospel is actually fellowship with him. It's, it's communion with him, relationship with him, and that's what Christ won for us on the cross. In Psalm 1611, it says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And this is, it's just, the Bible is soaked with this kind of language that God wants us to be happy. And just an example that, um, that Piper fleshed out for me and helped me to understand this truth in, in, in the form of relationships. I think about my, my marriage with Holly and if I told her, if I told her the reason why I love you, the reason why I'm married to you is because I have to. Um, it, it's my duty to love you. I, I do it. I don't leave you because 
That would be immoral. That would not be virtuous. The only reason why I'm with you is because it's something that I have to do. I mean, I'm not the most romantic person, but I would never dare say something like that. That's the most unromantic thing that anyone could ever possibly say. And if I had ever said that, I would be spending a week on the couch, never to be spoken by her, and rightly so. I mean, no one should ever say something like that to their wife. Um, even someone as dense as I am, I, I understand that. Um, and I think that's the way it is with God, too. We, we don't seek him only because it's our duty, but we seek him because the best part of our day after a long day of work is coming home, opening our Bibles and, and spending time in communion with the Lord, acknowledging that our time that we spend with him is the greatest experience that we ever experience. More than just being a duty, something that I have to do, I've got to open my Bible. It's because I want to spend time with him, and it's because he's my greatest joy. That's, that's what I think is honoring to the Lord. That's what's pleasing to God. He, he wants us to say those things. Just as a wife would say to her husband, that's, that's what I want to hear. So it is with God. He wants us to say those things. He wants us to be joyful in our pursuit of him. One of my favorite verses that I think captures this idea is in Psalm 73. Towards the end, it says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This is the heart that pleases God and gives us the greatest incentive for following after him. So number one, we persevere in faith by believing that God exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And number two, we persevere in faith by looking forward to our heavenly home. By looking forward to our heavenly home. If you can look at Hebrews 11 verses 8 to 10 and 13 to 16. I'll just read that for us. It's on the screen too. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. In Genesis 12, Abraham leaves his homeland and he goes to the land that God told him to go. But God never specified where he was actually going. God just called him out of his homeland to to go. And Abraham, in faith, not knowing where he was going, looking forward ahead to a heavenly city, he was able to leave his hometown and, and go. Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says that he was yearning for a heavenly dwelling a place where God lived, a better country that he could call his own. And even though he had the opportunity to return to his homeland, he knew that this world didn't really have a place that he could actually call his own. He lived as a stranger, as a foreigner, an exile in this world, living his tents. And, and every time that he stuck the tent to the ground and pulled it back up, back up from the ground, it was a reminder that there's no permanent place for him to place his roots on this earth. And I think this, this is something that we can all resonate with, isn't it? We, we all have a deep sense of homesickness, a deep restlessness that is in our hearts too. And we want to be in a place where all our deepest longings are filled, when we're surrounded by beauty 
aching for something to complete us, reminders that we, we have not yet arrived. For some of us, even for my wife, Holly, she's an Australian citizen. I mean, she's reminded of this every day. She's actually a foreigner. I think some of us are foreigners as well, and we're, we're reminded that we're actually not in a place that we would call home. But I think more than relating to his exact physical circumstance, I think there's a transcendent way in which we feel homesick. And we, we all feel this, regardless of whether we, we know specifically what it's like to be a foreigner in a different country. Sometimes, um, I don't know if you can relate to this, but there's random times when I listen to certain kinds of music, I, I start to feel like this aching in my heart. Like I, I don't know what it is. It's, it's not like a sappy kind of, oh, I want to, you know, hang out with my wife. I mean, though I do experience that at other moments. Um, but there's a different kind of feeling that I, that I experience when I listen to certain types of music, when I'm looking at a piece of art or architecture. It, it's like this aching. I can't really explain it, but it's when I'm traveling and I'm experiencing new cities, um, there's this feeling that I get like, man, there, there's, I don't know if you could relate to that, but there, I think what it is, it's, it's that homesickness. And it's, I'm, I'm aching for somewhere to call my home. And it's just nowhere to be found. And so it's like this emptiness that I feel inside. And um, I remember one time I was traveling um, in London, actually. And I don't know if you've been to London, but it's, it's a beautiful city, one of my favorite cities in the world. And walking around and seeing the bridges and some of the, the buildings that in Chicago, I mean, I see a building that's like 50 years old and I think, wow, that's, there's so much history there. But in, in London, they got buildings that are literally like thousands of year old, years old. I'm, you're walking by corporate towers and then the next block over there's like a thousand year old castle and i remember walking around after work and thinking oh my gosh this is so beautiful and i just started getting super lonely i'm not like one to get lonely i'm, I'm pretty independent but i was walking around in london by myself like feeling really lonely not like in a you know i need a hug kind of way but um <laughs> more it, it's this homesickness that i'm talking about it, it's it's like this yearning for something like it, it kind of touched something deep within the recesses of my heart like, oh my gosh, I, I, I long and I yearn for something. But it's not London. It, I don't know what it is. It's, London brought it out of me, but it's not actually London that I was aching for. It wasn't even back home in New York or Chicago that I was yearning for. It was, it was something else. And I, I think this is what Abraham felt when he's, he's moving around from town to town, living in these tents. He knew that there is no permanent place for him where he was traveling. And I think this is true for, for all of us too, even when we think of of the holidays. I think we all love Christmas time because that whole idea of coming home and being a part of a family and, and being filled by food and being around people that we love, it, it's a great feeling. All of us yearn to be with family and, and to be home during those special moments. But I, I, I look back on the times when I came home from New York to Chicago to visit my family for Christmas and different holidays. And for a moment, I think I felt complete. I felt like, oh, I, I finally arrived. I'm with the people that I love. It's amazing. But it, even that feeling, it's, it, after a few days or a couple hours, I feel like restless again. Like, I'm, this is actually not the place that I should call home. I don't know if you can relate with that, but I think this is what Hebrews 11 is talking about. Because a, apart from God, we can never truly find rest for our souls. We're going to be constantly finding substitutes to fill us, to fill that ache and that longing in our hearts. And... Um, C.S. Lewis is really helpful in this regard, and he says this one quote. It says, It was not in them, talking about the things that we long for, it was not in them, it only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire, but if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols. 
breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never visited. That, that last sentence again. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not yet heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. We, we are never at home until we are at home with Christ, and our longings can only find their end in him. And this is one of the crucial ways that we are energized to persevere in faith. It's by looking ahead to our, our heavenly home, recognizing that these longings and desires that we have in our hearts can never fully be filled in this lifetime on this earth. But we look ahead to Christ and being with him and dwelling with him forever. And even when we experience pain, I think it amplifies this desire for a place where we can have security and comfort. I have a, a seminary professor who's, who's in his late 60s. He always says, life is hard and then we die. And we're, you know, seminary is filled with 20 and 30-year-olds, and we think that this guy is super skeptical and, and, um, and just jaded. And how can you say something like that? But I think the reality is when we look at a lot of the hardship and suffering around us, that's true. Life, life is really hard, and then, and then we die. And there's so much brokenness and pain and suffering in this world and we, we can't help but to look around and see those circumstances and, and yearn for heaven, yearn for a place where all of our deepest longings for security can finally be filled. And uh, the end of Revelation, the whole Bible comes to an end by, by touching on this deep yearning that we feel. And, and it says this, God will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there, there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. I, I think that's just a beautiful close to the Bible in that all of our pain that we experience, it all comes to a close. And when we're with God in eternity, we won't experience that pain anymore. We will be with him. There's no pain. He's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. And we can dwell with him forever. I even think about our congregation here and, and the people who are going through um, enormous suffering. And I don't know how to encourage anyone who goes through that kind of pain except to say that one day we will be with the Lord forever in eternity. And he will wipe away every tear, no more mourning, no more pain. For the former things have passed away. And we, we say with Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, for our light and momentary troubles are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. We fix our eyes on what is, what is unseen because that's what is going to last for eternity. One more C.S. Lewis quote before I, I close with my last point, but he says this, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find until after, after my death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside, I must make it the main objective of my life to press on to that other country and to help others do the same. Man, I don't, 
I don't really get that emotional. I wasn't even getting emotional as I was preparing this. I don't know what happened. It just started like flooding out. And I hit that point where I couldn't like recover. And uh, it just kept like flowing out. And like as I kept talking, it just got like worse and worse. Like it just sort of flew out. That was a weird experience. But um, um, the last point that I want to make is that we persevered faith by seeking the greater pleasure in the face of sin. Uh, Verses 24 to 26. By faith, Moses when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking ahead to the reward. In Exodus 1, Pharaoh is concerned because the growing Israelite population, the slave population, they're outgrowing their their own people. And so he issues an edict to destroy every son that is born to the Israelites. And he wants to make sure that these guys who are being born aren't going to outgrow their population. And so he demands that every son that's born is, is to be murdered. And so when Moses is born, his mom actually goes and hides him among the reeds and, and near the river. And Pharaoh's daughter eventually finds him and, and raises him, adopts him as her own. And Moses grows up in this royalty, and he has the choice of, of indulging in the excesses of living in royalty, all the sinful pleasures that come along with that. I mean, I'm sure he would have had his own personal harem, um, all the wealth and all the pleasures that money could buy, all at his fingertips. But he chose to be mistreated along with the other slaves, all the other Israelites that were there. And he eventually opposes Pharaoh in freeing his people. And when we think about what enabled him to overcome his sin is that he looked to the greater reward. It says that he looked to the treasures that were found in Christ, and that was more beautiful than the treasures and the pleasures of sin. And when we think about sin, that's, that's basically what sin is. It appeals to an innate sense within all of us for, for pleasure, for desire. This is what I touched on in my first point. And, and sin just takes that one step further and perverts it. It, it takes any legitimate desire, whether that's for sex, for, for companionship, for relationship, for security, and it perverts them and makes them something that they shouldn't be. A longing for sex becomes immorality. A desire for companionship becomes idolizing relationships. A desire for security gives way to idolizing money and a, a hoarding mentality. These, these are a perversion of something that God placed inside of us that is actually good to start with. And again, God talks about this whole idea of reward, and he appeals to this desire of reward and he says that we must choose Christ over sin because when we choose Christ, we're, we're not doing anything that's different outside of our nature. We're, we're just choosing something that's better. We, we, we still have this essence of, of reward, and we still operate according to that principle, and we pursue the thing that's better. And there's this one quote that, that I like to, to think about when I'm in the face of temptation, but it's fighting pleasure with the greater pleasure. Fighting sin doesn't mean we, we quell all our desires. We, we, we just say no, and we, we try to grit our teeth and say no to temptation. But fighting pleasure, fighting sin means, means taking hold of the greater pleasure that we can find in Christ. And we acknowledge that the way that we are designed is to, is to seek reward, to seek these things that we desire. We want to do things that benefit us. And so when we face sin and temptation, the thing that is better for us is ultimately is Christ. And so overcoming sin is not forcing ourselves to choose Christ, but to do what we can to see Christ more clearly so that there is no other option but to choose him because he's that much more beautiful. So we don't settle for cheap thrills and pleasures. We, we, we seek the only pleasure that can last, which is deep fellowship with him. 
Matthew 6, verses 19 to 21 says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Again, this, this language of, of reward and, and satisfaction and treasure, it, it just explodes out of the Bible. And here it is again, this language of, of placing our treasure, finding our treasure in heaven and not in any earthly treasure that we could ever find in the form of sin or any other worldly pleasure. John 10.10 10 says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. When we experience fullness in Christ, we, we have no need to fill ourselves with anything else in the world. Christ is enough in the face of temptation. In Matthew 5, in the Beatitudes, it says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. In, in essence, what guarding ourselves from sin and temptation enables us to do is to see God more clearly. And that's the greatest thing that we could ever long for. It, it's to see God face to face, to be in absolute communion with him. I just wanted to close. You know, we've looked at persevering in faith through fixing our eyes on Christ, our reward, by looking forward to our heavenly home, and, and lastly, to pursuing the greater pleasure that is found in pursuing Christ. And I, I think it's, 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 it's easy to, when we're faced with a really difficult circumstance, to, to be bogged down and to, to fall under the weight of the pressure of, of those circumstances. And I think what I wanted to, to exhort our congregation to do is to, to keep our eyes fixed on Christ and to, to believe his promises, to trust that he is true to his character. Again, I want to read Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I think that's a beautiful summary of the gospel, that the whole reason why God rescued us from the dominion of sin is because he wanted us to experience fellowship with Christ forever. And I think in the heart of difficulties, in the heart of temptation, fixing ours on Christ means desiring an intimate relationship with, with him and, and pursuing him with our whole hearts as our reward. And God is, is true to his promises. He wants to, to be in relationship with us, and he went so far as to sacrifice his own son. And so we, we keep going. We press on knowing that where we go or what experience may, may lay ahead, we trust that God will be our strength he will be our portion, our reward, and our home forever. Can I just pray for us as we close? This, this chapter is packed with a lot of different truths about what it means to persevere in faith and but I think the greatest incentive that it offers is the deep joy and intimacy that walking with Christ can offer. And so maybe we can take a minute or two reflecting on the truth that, that Christ is our reward, that Christ is our treasure, that all of our deepest longings that we feel in our hearts, the ache that we feel, all of those things can only be filled as we turn to Christ and say that he is our home. He is the one that we want to make our dwelling place with. And so let's take a moment to acknowledge Christ as our portion, as our Savior, as our rock, as our, as our strong tower in those moments of trouble and difficulty. So let's take a few moments to, to pray for that, to acknowledge those things.
Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.